Hello and welcome to History Plus True Crime Uncovered, a podcast series that will explore all things history, including historical stories, people, and even places of interest. If you're into these topics, then I think you've found the right place. To start out, I have to give a disclaimer as many episodes are either graphic in nature or inappropriate for certain age groups. Some content in this episode may be sensitive to some listeners. Discretion is advised for those under the age of 13. I am your host, Jamie Peters. Let's dive in. On today's episode of the podcast, I'm going to talk about Jack the Ripper, the case, and how it started criminal profiling. Jack the Ripper was an unidentified serial killer active in and around the impoverished Whitechapel district of London, England in 1888. In both criminal case files and the contemporary journalistic accounts, the killer was also called the Whitechapel Murderer and Leather Apron. No one really knows who Jack the Ripper was, and no one knows for certain what motivated him. There have been many suspects over the years, but no one has ever been charged with crimes. To start with, I'm going to cite a source. Um, There was an article published in 2019 on science.org by David Adam entitled, Does a New Genetic Analysis Finally Reveal the Identity of Jack the Ripper? Scientists claim it's the best evidence to date, but critics are skeptical. They think they may have figured out who he was. Now keep in mind, this is not irrefutable proof. No one actually knows who Jack the Ripper was, but this is, I think, going to come as close as we're ever going to get to solving these crimes. And here's what was stated in the article. Forensic scientists say they have finally fingered the identity of Jack the Ripper, the notorious serial killer who terrorized the streets of London more than a century ago. Genetic tests published this week point to Aaron Kosminski, a 23-year-old Polish barber and a prime police suspect at the time. But critics say that the evidence isn't strong enough to declare this case closed. The results come from a forensic examination of a stained silk shawl that investigators said was found next to the mutilated body of Catherine Eddowes, the killer's fourth victim in 1888. The shawl is speckled with what is claimed to be blood and semen, the latter believed to be from the killer. Four other women in London were also murdered in a three-month spree and the culprit has never been confirmed. This isn't the first time Kosminski has been linked to the crimes, but it is the first time the supporting DNA evidence has been published in a peer-reviewed journal. The first genetic tests on shawl samples were conducted several years ago by Jari Lewin Heinlein, a biochemist at Liverpool, John Moore's University in the United Kingdom, but he also said he wanted to wait for the fuss to die down before he submitted the results. Author Russell Edwards, who bought the shawl in 2007 and gave it to Luhan, used the unpublished results of the test to identify Kosminski as the murderer in a 2014 book called Naming Jack the Ripper. But 
Genesis complained that at the time that it was impossible to assess the claims because few technical details about the analysis of genetic samples from the shawl were available. The new paper lays out lays those out up to a point in which Lewenhain and his colleague colleague David Miller, a reproduction and sperm expert at the University of Leeds in United Kingdom, claim it is the most systematic and most advanced genetic analysis to date regarding the Jack the Ripper murders. They describe describe extracting and amplifying the DNA from the shawl. The test compared fragments of mitochondrial DNA, the portion of DNA inherited only from one's mother, Retrieved from the shawl with samples taken from living descendants of Edo's, excuse me, Edo's and Kosminski. The DNA matches that of a living relative of Kosminski, they conclude in the Journal of Forensic Sciences. The analysis also suggests that the killer had brown hair and brown eyes, which agrees with the evidence from an eyewitness. Quote, these characteristics are surely not unique, end quote, the authors admit in their paper. But blue eyes are now more common than brown in England, the researchers note. The results are unlikely to satisfy critics. Key details on the specific genetic variants identified and compared between DNA samples are not included in the paper. Instead, the authors represent them in a graphic with a series of colored boxes. Where the boxes overlap, they say, the shawl and modern DNA sequences matched. But regardless, he was, in a macabre way, a man for his times. The turmoil of the Industrial Revolution in Britain upset the standard social order, generating new ambitions, conflicts, and frustrations. Urbanization, crowding, and change led to the creation of the alienated loner. Harsh and inhumane conditions, an indifference towards children, and a savage lifestyle all conspired to create an environment conductive to violence and sexual deviance. It is not surprising the psychological and social infrastructures of the 19th century produced the first modern serial killer. Many of the city slums in Victorian London were demolished during a series of social reforms, but the slums of Whitechapel and Spitalfields survived and predictably endured an influx of criminals displaced by the city's urban renewal. The late 1800s saw almost a million people dwelling in the slums east of Aldgate Pump. 4,000 houses in Whitechapel alone one year were condemned as uninhabitable though little was done about it for years. Liquid sewage filled the cellars of houses and people kept their windows, those not yet broken, shut because of the stench from without. The majority of families, often up to nine, lived in one room. Incest was common in these crowded conditions, even amongst children as young as 10. As you can tell, this was not um, a fun time to be poor in London. Many East End youth died before they were five. It would not be unusual for a mother to send her young children into the streets until after midnight while she engaged in the business of prostitution to make sufficient money to feed them. Often children fell off their seats at school from exhaustion or cried from the pain of chronic starvation. Yet these unfortunates at least had a home. 
Many others slept on the streets or in dustbins under stairways or bridges. Those who managed to scrape together enough money could rent a room in a lodging house and such buildings held 8,500 nightly in Whitechapel. Within these DOS houses, flea-infested wallpaper hung in strips and stairway handrails were missing, long ago burnt for firewood. If you could not afford a straw mattress, two pence bought you the privilege of a place along a rope to lean against and sleep. Women's work included scrubbing, sweatshop tailoring, hop picking, and and or sack or matchbox making, all with a complete lack of safety standards. 17 hours of backbreaking labor paid 10 pence, less than the cost of materials. Prostitution was a viable alternative, paying anywhere from a loaf of stale bread to three pence. It was estimated that one woman in 16 engaged in this trade, for a total of 1,200 prostitutes in Whitechapel and 80,000 in London. The environment in the slums of London was such that Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw commented after the second of the Ripper killings that perhaps, quote, the murderer was a social reformer who wanted to draw attention to social conditions in the East End, end quote. Little is known about Jack the Ripper beyond his handiwork. The first murder took place on Bank Holiday, Friday, August 31, 1888, in Bucks Row. The victim was Polly Nichols, a 42-year-old alcoholic with gray hair and five missing front teeth. She had five children from a broken marriage. The Ripper cut her throat from ear to ear, back to the vertebrae, and sliced open her abdomen from pelvis to stomach. The autopsy found she sustained stab wounds to the vagina. The next killing took place in a yard at number 29 Hanbury Street on Saturday, September 8, 1888. Annie Chapman was 45 years of age, stout and missing two of her front teeth. An alcoholic, she was separated from her husband and two children. One of them was a cripple. She was found with her neck cut so deeply it appeared as if an attempt had been made to take off her head. Her abdomen was laid open and her intestines placed over her shoulder. Parts of her vagina and bladder had been removed. On Sunday, September 30th, 1888, a double murder occurred. The Ripper first attacked Elizabeth Stride in a courtyard next to the International Working Men's Education Club on Burner Street. Stride was a 45-year-old alcoholic missing her front teeth and the roof of her mouth. She bore nine children, but claimed her husband and two offspring had perished in a steamboat disaster. The Ripper had cut her throat, severing the windpipe. The mutilation was minimal as he was interrupted by a carriage entering the courtyard. Within the hour, a second body was discovered in Meacher Square in the city of London. Catherine Adows, 43 years, was like her fellow victims, an alcoholic with a broken marriage. She carried all of her worldly possessions in her pockets. Her throat was deeply cut and her abdomen laid open from breast downwards and the entrails, quote, flung in a heap about her neck, end quote. Her ear was almost cut off and a kidney taken, the latter apparently mailed to the authorities. 
the final and most horrific murder occurred at 13 Miller's Court on Friday, November 9th, 1888. Mary Kelly, only 20 years of age and apparently three months pregnant, was already a widow with alcohol problems. A bizarre sight greeted those who discovered her body. Her head and left arm were almost severed, her breasts and nose cut off, thighs and forehead skinned, entrails wrenched away, and her body parts piled on the bedside table. Jack the Ripper had all the time he needed to satiate his bizarre desires in Miller's court, and while debate continues on whether he was responsible for other prostitute murders that occurred around this time, most investigators believe that he stopped for whatever reason after the mutilation of Mary Kelly. In 1988, the FBI prepared a criminal personality profile for the Jack the Ripper murders. Based on Big, Fido, and Skinner from 1991, Douglas and Old Shaker 1995, The Secret Identity of Jack the Ripper 1988. After an analysis of the crime scenes, police and autopsy reports, photographs, victimology, and area demographics, the following key crime scene elements were identified. Blitz attacks and lust murders, high degree of psychopathology exhibited at the crime scenes, no evidence of sexual assault, possible manual strangulation, post-mortem mutilation and organ removal, but no torture, elaboration of ritual, victims selected on the basis of accessibility all the crimes took place on a friday saturday or a sunday in the early morning hours and unreported attacks might have occurred with the caution that profiling deals in probabilities and generalities not certainties the fbi report suggests that jack the ripper was a white male between the ages of 28 to 36 was average intelligence lucky but not clever was single never married and had difficulty in interacting with people in general and women in particular was nocturnal and not accountable to anyone blended in with his surroundings had poor personal hygiene and appeared disheveled was personally inadequate with a low self-image and diminished emotional responses was a quiet loner withdrawn and antisocial was of lower social class lived or worked in Whitechapel and committed the crimes close to home had a mental a menial job with little to no interaction with the public was employed Monday to Friday possibly as a butcher mortician's helper medical examiner's assistant or hospital attendant the proximity of London Hospital was noted in the profile. Was the product of a broken home and lacked consistent care and stable adult role models as a child. Was raised by a dominant female figure who drank heavily, consorted with different men, and physically, possibly sexually abused him. Set fires and abused animals as a child. Hated, feared, and was intimidated by women. Internalized his anger was mentally disturbed and sexually inadequate with much generalized rage directed against women desired power control and dominance behaved erratically engaged in sexually motivated attacks 
towards victims, drank in local pubs prior to the murders, hunted nightly, and was observed walking all over Whitechapel during the early morning hours. Did not have medical knowledge or surgical expertise, was probably interviewed by police at some point, did not write any of the Jack the Ripper letters and would not have publicly challenged the police and did not commit suicide after the murders stopped. The geographic concentration of the Ripper crimes has long made their topography of interest to researchers. The murders were all within a mile of each other and the total hunting area was just over a half a square mile in size. In 1998, a geographic profile was produced for the Jack the Ripper case based on body dump sites. The peak area of geo profile focused on the locale around Flower and Dean Street and Thrall Street. Flower and Dean Street and Thrall Street no longer exist as they used to, but in 1888 they lay between Commercial Street to the west and Brick Lane to the east, north of Whitechapel Road. During the time of the Whitechapel murders, they contained several DOS houses. Dorset Street lay less than two blocks to the north along Commercial Street. This was the vice-ridden neighborhood that East End social reformers referred to as the Wicked Quarter Mile. It appears that the notorious rookery played a key role in the Jack the Ripper mystery and there is some supporting evidence for the geographic profile results. All of the victims resided within a couple hundreds of yards of each other in the Thrall, Flower, and Dean, Dorset, and Church Street DOS houses off Commercial Street. Polly Nichols used to reside reside at 18 Thrall Street just before her death she was evicted and moved into the White House at 56 Flower and Dean Street a DOS house that slept both men and women. Annie Chapman's primary residence was Crossingham's Common Lodging House at 35 Dorset Street. Elizabeth Stride occasionally lived in a common lodging house at number 32 Flower and Dean Street and reportedly was there the night of her murder. Catherine Eddowes usually stayed in Cooney's Lodging House at number 55 Flower and Dean Street and had slept there two nights before her murder. Mary Kelly lived and died in McCarthy's Rents at 13 Miller's Court off Dorset Street. It was actually the back room of 26 Dorset Street situated across the road from Crossingham's Common Lodging House. She had previously resided in George Street between Flowery Dean and Thrall Street. Kelly was seen picking up a man on Commercial Street between Thrall and Flower and Dean Streets the night of her murder. These residences were suspiciously close to each other, covering less than 1.5% of the total hunting area. It is difficult to assess the significance of this finding as the locale had a concentration of slum lodging houses where most Spitfields Parish prostitutes lived at one time or another. These women were also highly transient. Two blocks north of Flower and Dean Street was the Ten Bells Pub, now known as the Jack the Ripper Public House, on Church Street and Commercial Street across from Spitfields Market. All the Ripper victims were known to have drank here. Possibly Whitechapel Road and Commercial Street Road were arterial routes used by the killer. Part of Edo's bloodstained apron was cut away by her killer, and the missing segment was later found in the passageway to a staircase for the Wentworth model dwellings number 108 to 119, 
Galston Street. Located just south of Wentworth Street, the new flats were one-third of a mile away and a 10-minute walk from Mitra Square where Eddowes was murdered. It appeared the bloody apron piece was used to wipe clean a knife. The following graffiti was written in chalk above the black brick wall. The Jews are not the men that will be blamed for nothing. It was written in broken English. This location between Mitri Square and Flower and Dean Street is on the likely route home if the Jack the Ripper indeed lived in the infamous Wicked Quarter Mile. Some police theorized at the time the Jack that the Ripper's route led to the vicinity of Flower and Dean Street and others believe this should be the epicenter for their manhunt. In the end, it changed the way in which criminals were profiled in an attempt to solve cases new and cold. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating and review. And as always, leave comments or send an email to history true crime uncovered at gmail.com with suggestions for future episodes until then catch you next time